You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Okay, well, welcome to you. My name is Jamie. If I haven't met you, I'm the lead pastor here at 1208, and uh, we're just so happy you're here. At 1208, we try to create space, foster growth, love people, and we do all this because we love God. Yeah, you were supposed to say that, but it's cool. Uh, <laughs> because we love God. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, and today, uh, normally we've been preaching through Matthew lately. Today, we're just going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, sometimes, you know, when you're following a long train of thought, it's, it's nice to just take a break and remind yourself of, of simple things like God's love. And when I say simple, I mean, it, it's simple because God is love, but it's also like simple in the fact that like, this is gospel, this is definition. You know, theologians for centuries have been trying to figure out who is God? What is God? How do you define God? And then you find the Bible authors just saying, he's love. What don't you get? You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, all right. So uh, today I just want to kind of just have a little bit of a break in our Matthew series, just have a discourse on love. Uh, and I'm going to actually read to you uh, out of my book, A Taste of Jesus. Some of you have already read it. So you're like, oh, I got to listen to this again. Sorry, you do. Or you can leave. That's up to you. You can come and go at your own convenience here. Um, but I just want to read some of it. Uh, I actually was kind of listening through this myself recently, uh, not because I listened to myself a lot, uh, <laughs> but uh, I was just at a day, I was like, you know what? I wrote like an hour long chapter on love, which I'm not gonna read the whole thing, don't worry. Some of you are freaking out. I just need to remind myself of my own words about God's love. And so today that's, now I remind you as well. So I'll read to you, which is not usually how I preach. So if I sound weird, because I am. All right. Thank you. I'll be honest. I'm a sucker for a good chick flick. It's just fun to watch people fall in love with each other. And if you're like me, sometimes you'll be watching a completely secular movie when all of a sudden a God thing is said and you have a revelation. This happened to me while I was watching the movie The Fault in Our Stars, based on John Green's book by the same name. The girl in this movie is dying from cancer. Because of that, she keeps trying to push her pursuer away. It doesn't work, though. The boy is adamant about being with her and at one point says, I hope you realize trying to keep your distance from me in no way lessens my affection for you. All your efforts to keep me from you are going to fail. Whoa, I thought. That's a good line. That's, that's a God line. Because God is crazy about you. He's the most extravagant of pursuers out there. He knows every detail about you because he knit you together in your mother's womb. He is so meticulous about you that he has even counted how many hairs there are on your head. He cares about the minuscule details of your life. I love the story evangelist Jeff Jansen tells about a woman who was healed at one of his meetings in South Korea. Miraculously, her missing finger completely grew out. And God even went so far as to put the right color fingernail polish on the nail to match the others. Why? Because he pays attention to detail, because he cares, because he loves. He knows everything about you, the dirt, the grime, everything. And yet despite that knowledge, he chooses you. You're worth it to him. He would literally die for you to make that clear, and he already did. 
He is zealous for you and he's been chasing you down since before day one. You didn't just find God one day because he had already found you first. You just finally acknowledged his loving presence. The fact that you were a sinner before you accepted his love didn't make him any less loving towards you because God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Regardless of where you stand with him, he still makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's not every day you come across a system that hands out love to everyone, enemy and friend alike, but that's how God works. He is loving towards you, no matter your racial, ethnic, cultural, religious, or sexual identity. This insistence on the absolute indiscriminate nature of compassion within the kingdom is the dominant perspective of almost all of Jesus' teaching, says Brennan Manning. God's love is so vast and incomprehensible, pure and undefiled, and straight up unbridled, that it will surely take you some time to detox from your own ideas and concepts of what you believe love to be in order to accept his love. It's a love that covers simple mistakes and intentional sin. It's a love that devotes itself full-heartedly to people regardless of their desire or inability to return it. The lover is not concerned with the lovey's idea of when it is appropriate to show PDA. He simply pours it out in a flood, knowing that it will be the energy we need to survive life itself. For he made life and sustains it through both science and spirit, oxygen for the body, love for the soul. God shows no partiality. He is no respecter of persons. He takes care of everyone, those who have it together and those who in their brokenness tear everything apart for the rest of us. He gives and gives and he does so freely and gratuitously. Your action does not determine his reaction. His answer is love regardless. He has seen the way we run around offering the depths of our souls to unworthy idols, spirits, people, and objects. And he has decided to be faithful to us even when we are not to him. He is that kind of love, so strong it's offensive, so offensive that it smashes our defenses. It gets up in our business. It plays the field looking for weak points to break through to the other side. When God put on flesh and walked among us as Jesus, he showed us this incredible love. He tracked down the least of these, spent time with them, healed them, delivered them, and genuinely cared for them at his own expense. Not only did this take much of his time and energy, but it made him enemies with the Pharisees, the people who should have known him best. When God comes to earth, we'll be the ones who will recognize him, Pharisees said. For now, take a look at us, and we'll show you what he looks like in the flesh. But Jesus, the actual God in flesh, reserved his harshest words for those people. They didn't look like him at all. They didn't have love. They had spent their lifetime studying how God would have them live, and yet they missed the point entirely. They were absolutely offended by God in flesh when they finally saw him. Why would he spend so much time with sinners? Why wouldn't he follow legalistic rules and regulations to a fault? Why wouldn't he be one of them? Because Jesus isn't one of them and never will be. He made that clear time and time again. He came to set people free, not enslave them. He came to heal them, not condemn them. He came to deliver them from their enemies, not entrap them. He was the only one to live life perfectly on earth, and therefore the only one who could have expected us to live up to the rules and regulations in order to earn love. But instead, he did the opposite. He lived perfectly, and expected people to receive grace in return for his perfection. 
His offensive love was to be offered freely and without condition. So Jesus allowed those who should have known him best to murder him, unleashing God's love on the world like never before. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do, cried God in flesh as he breathed his last while nailed to a cross. Lord, do not hold this sin against them, yelled Jesus' first martyr as the rock bashed against his head. It's that kind of love, so incomprehensible that we still question it after 2,000 years of familiarity with Jesus. He is the God of the prodigal. He throws parties and celebrates those who return to him, even after all of their actions have been incredibly insulting and hurtful. He is a lover of the burnout and the sellout, the least of the least of the least of these, the poor and the homeless, the weak and the beat up, the prostitutes and the virgins, the outcasts and the weirdos, and even the religious, the rich and the strong. He heals those who deserve to be sick. He remains patient with those who deserve swift punishment. He dies for those who kill him. He offers forgiveness to those who still have yet to learn that they have people they must forgive themselves. He offers his Holy Spirit to imperfect bodies that continue to subject themselves to all kinds of unholy things. This is love. This is Jesus. This is who God has always been and always will be. A being of boundless, unconditional, extravagant, unrelenting, beautiful, offensive love. However, many of you, like me, have at times convinced yourself that God is angry with you and hates you. So let me speak to your struggle right now with some good news. According to the New Testament, your conception of God is unbiblical. Because again, biblically, God is love. When we look at Jesus, we see the Father. And Jesus was loving and kind to us. He reserved his harshest words, not for the broken, distraught, and downtrodden, but the people who thought they had it all together, the Pharisees. Jesus showed us firsthand through his life that he was about the people on the margins, the one we missed and counted as out. Jesus showed us that we had it all backwards. Don't have it all together? Join the club. The same club that Jesus spent a lot of his time with. The same club that poured out their stumbling yet authentic worship out on his feet. The same club that Jesus poured his perfect authentic adoration back out on in return. But now that Jesus is gone in bodily form, for some reason we're afraid he's mad. <laughs> we learn to let go of this. Uh, we need to learn to let go of this illogical misguided theory that Jesus was loving to us while he was on the earth. But now that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he judges with an iron fist, no longer pouring out love on people, but stern punishment. Why would Jesus' love be so unconditional while he was on the world, in this world, and suddenly become totally conditional after death? asks Richard Rohr. Is it the same Jesus? Or does God change his policy after his resurrection? You are loved, remember that. You are loved despite yourself. You are loved despite your sin. And how would your sin detract from his desire to, to love you anyways? He loved us not because we were lovable, but because he is love, says C.S. Lewis. He goes on elsewhere saying, Christ did not die for men because they were intrinsically worth dying for, but because he is intrinsically love and therefore loves infinitely. Trust me, you are not so special that God can Love everyone else but you. <laughs> Rich Mullins once said at one of his concerts that God loves everybody. That don't make me special. That just proves God has no taste. 
And I don't think he does, thank God. You're not any less loved than anyone else. A mentor of mine once told me, God loved for you and died for you on your worst day, not your best. That has stuck with me for years now, and I often use it when I'm praying for others, reminding them of that simple fact. He didn't die for us on the day we had it all together. He died for us when we committed our worst sins. Well, on a mission strip in Greece, I saw God's love be about as blatant as it could be in a back alley in Athens. After packing up bags of blankets and a giant container of soup, our team joined a local ministry and headed out to a rundown part of the city. Curbs were lined with litter and a collection of the city's broken people sat along the sidewalks. Not entirely sure as to what the game plan was, I watched as these Christians plugged in a speaker, set up a table to serve soup, and got ready to go to work. Some of us handed out food, while others of us got to know the people who were there. If we got a chance, we prayed with them. These were the drug addicts of town. I'm not just speculating this, I watched a fair amount of them light up right in front of me. I even think I witnessed a man sell off a few gadgets he had stolen throughout the day to make some money. We were told that cops didn't really go down to this area and that people didn't really care much for these addicts in general. Yet, here was this group of Christians loving on them and feeding them, unoffended by their sin. They weren't there to judge, but to care for those whom God loves, just as they did every Thursday. We heard some difficult stories and prayed some good prayers, happily handing out Bibles and pamphlets to anyone who wanted them. It was powerful to watch the unconditional love of God stare right into their hurting souls. It reminded me of a dream vineyard pastor Robbie Dawkins had that he shared in Darren Wilson's documentary, Furious Love. Here's what he says. I saw the Lord show me this picture of this church filled with drug addicts, with prostitutes, with drug dealers and gang bangers, with people from all different forms of crime life. And they were in this church and they were doing everything wrong. They were having sex in the pews. They were drinking. They were doing drugs in the pews. They were selling drugs to each other. And I remember at one point I hollered out and said, if you're not going to honor God's house and respect his house, then get out. Exactly what probably the majority of pastors or leaders would say. And I remember the Lord speaking back to me so clearly and saying, why would you send away what I have sent in? Why would you send away what you've been asking for? And I said, I didn't ask for this. And he said, you asked me for the lost. Now keep it simple. Love them and let me change them. The disciple John was so in touch with his own belovedness that it's almost comical. Throughout his gospel, there are four chapters that make mention of the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is this unnamed disciple? In John 21, 24, we finally figure it out. The disciple whom Jesus loved is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. In other words, John is saying, surprise, it's me, the author. Jesus loves me. I'm the beloved disciple. When I originally learned this, I had to laugh. I guess we all have downfalls, I thought to myself, and John's was pride. Or maybe John didn't mean I'm better than everyone else or Jesus loves me more than the rest, but rather recognized his identity within the love of Jesus. Of course, sometimes we're fine with uh, our own belovedness, but what we don't want to do is love the others who are out there. I find that the quickest way to destroy judgment and grow in love is to use the power of empathy. If we could only learn to feel the feels of those around us, we'd start to show some compassion for them. They would no longer be hidden behind a label or chastised for their decisions, but empathized with. 
We would know the depths of their pain and loneliness. We'd be able to draw the lines of similarity between them and us. The truth is, without empathy, we will never be able to love others. They'll remain the others, and we'll remain the ones. They'll be the outsiders, we'll be the insiders. Without empathy, we'll continually return to the science of who we are and judge others rather than live by the unconditional love of the Holy Spirit. Without empathy, we'll never see ourselves in their skin. Henry Nouwen convicts us all of this when he says, compassion grows with the inner recognition that your neighbor shares your humanity with you. This partnership cuts through all the walls which might have kept you separate, across all barriers of land and language, wealth and poverty, knowledge and ignorance, we are one. Created from the same dust, subject to the same laws, and destined for the same end. With this compassion you can say, in the face of the oppressed I recognize my own face, and in the hands of the oppressor I recognize my own hands. Their flesh is my flesh. Their blood is my blood. Their pain is my pain. Their smile is my smile. Their ability to torture is in me too. Nothing in them that does not belong to me. In my heart, I know their yearning for love. And down to my entrails, I can feel their cruelty. In another's eyes, I see my plea for forgiveness. And in a hardened frown, I see my refusal. When someone murders, I know that I too could have done that. And when someone gives birth, I know that I am capable of that as well. In the depths of my being, I meet my fellow humans with whom I share love and hate, life and death. Can you see yourself in others? Do you try to imagine yourself in their shoes or create scenarios for their lives that help you love them rather than hate them? A friend of the church, Nathan Foster, He's practiced this art and found in doing so that the rude cashier at the grocery store turns into a wounded person spewing venom on anyone willing to take it. The guy who cuts me off in traffic is pitied for the frantic pace he lives. The woman scantily clad in inappropriate clothing is just bearing a deep longing for a love she can't seem to find. Pastor Greg Boyd tried something similar while walking around the mall one day. As I replace judgmental thoughts, he said, with loving thoughts and prayers of blessing, something extraordinary began to happen. I began to see the worth I was ascribing to people, and I began to feel the love I was giving them. As I ascribed worth to people, not allowing any other thought, opinion, or feeling to enter my mind, my heart began to expand. In fact, at certain moments, I felt as though I would explode with love was waking up to the immeasurable value and beauty of each person in the mall that afternoon. So what about you? Do you see people? Not simply acknowledge them, but really see them. When someone yells at you, does your heart break because of their words or because of their pain? Because when you see someone, really see them, even the most hardened of criminals becomes a person needing God's love. We'll know that we're growing when our love for people dwarfs our opinions about them. Author Bob Goff tweeted, It's easier said than done in today's world. We cast our judgment quickly, spewing pure hatred on anything and everything. The internet tells us that our opinion matters and that we should always give it. That's exactly why you should never read the comment section of any webpage. Because as it ends up, most people's judgments are not only misinformed, but flat out stupid. <laughs> Let me be straight. 
Your opinion is not as important as you've been told. You don't need to say every word that comes to your mind. You don't need to raise your hand in every single class. You don't have to pick fights with others simply because you can. In fact, you might learn a lot more by simply being quiet. Opinion is often judgment, and if you cast it whenever you can, your opinion will soon mean little, and your judgment will appear flawed. Plus, many of us confuse our opinions with facts, as perfectly illustrated in Pixar's movie Inside Out, when Joy knocks over a box of opinions and a box of facts and says, all these facts and opinions look the same, I can't tell them apart. When we're all about our opinion, we tend to talk more about what we hate than what we like. My wife, for example, uh, hates red delicious apples so much that I can never remember what kind of apples she actually likes because all she ever talks about is her dislike for Red Delicious. Sometimes I even end up buying her Red Delicious apples because she talks about them so much that I'm like, these must be the right ones. Uh, there's a footnote here that says, why is my wife staring at me when she's proofreading this? Uh, and also this is an imperfect analogy. My wife is not a bad example of the church. Thank you very much. All right. The church has a habit of turning people into red delicious apples. We talk about our disdain for them so much that no one ever really remembers what we actually like. Let go of your judgment on others. It was never meant for you to carry. Really, it's the sin you inherited from Adam and Eve, isn't it? You were made to be imagers of God in many ways, but one of the characteristics you weren't supposed to carry, or at least not until God gave it to you himself, was the knowledge of good and evil. But when Adam and Eve ate from that tree and passed it on to the rest of us, we got messed up. Only God was to carry the knowledge of good and evil. Only God was to carry judgment of another person. Only God could know enough about a person to cast perfect judgment on their lives. But we thought we could. We thought we could be like God. So we tasted the tree's fruit and received the ability to judge without the ability to do so perfectly. If we didn't have this knowledge, there would be no need for the law of the Old Testament. For what is law but the knowledge of good and evil? But since we now have that knowledge, we need to write it down in order to hold each other accountable to whatever we discern as God's standard. We're cursed with judgment, a peace of God that was reserved for God that we thought we could handle ourselves, so we stole it. It rules our lives. In our pride, we try to pretend we know people the same way as God and therefore cast our judgment on others. But both Jesus and Paul told us to stop and leave it to God. It was his job in the beginning, and it'll be his to the end. If you're not going to judge anyone, or if you're going to judge anyone, judge yourself. Discern what's lodged that two by four in your eye and get the spiritual attention. You need to get it out. Let go of Adam's blood and receive Jesus's. For you are a new creation in him. What Adam's blood has destroyed, Jesus's blood has restored. If you continually grab onto the old blood inside of you that beckons from deep within your genetics, you will judge others. But if you live by the blood of Jesus, spiritually imparted to you through grace and mercy, you will discern others rather than judge them. We are called to love in all things because God is love. And that's why we at 12 Awake create space, foster growth, and love people because this is how we believe that we love God. Uh, Sarah's going to come up and open us up to communion. Uh, the band can come up as well. I'm just telling my kids over there. Like, Shh. So hopefully. Hi, girls.
Alrighty. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about this evening was to start with the story of creation. I love the story of creation, not necessarily to look at it for the how or the when, but the why. Why were we created? So I went through this week just um, really looking for what it says about why. And I did get some of this from Richard Rohr as he's talking about creation. And so the first day is light, and we have night and we have day, and God says, it is good. And the second day, he created the sky, and it was so. And on the third day, he created land and vegetation, and it was so, and it was good. The fourth day is sun and the moon, it was so, and it was good. And on the fifth day, we have the sea creatures and the birds, and it was good. And on the sixth day are the creatures on the land, and it was good. And humans, and God blessed them, and said it was very good. So over and over, you see this pattern of God saying creation is good. It is good, it is good, it is good. It is very good when he gets to us, when he gets to the humans. And so I sit there with it and I think, wait, am I very good? What does that mean deep inside? Aren't we all terrible, awful, sinful people, right? Isn't that something that I feel like I've internalized so much? I'm just a terrible person. I need God, which is all true, right? There's parts of me that are not so great, right? But what about this person that God created? What about the deepest part that informs who I am, my true self? That part actually could be very, very good, right? That's the part of me that tells me who I am and is also the exact same part that allows me to connect to God, to connect to the divine. And that is the very good who God originally intended us to be. And am I usually this person, this really good true self? Probably not, right? I've got my hiccups, I've got my anger, my bitterness, my pride. That's what gets in the way of me being my true self and connecting with God. So when I think about how do I get back to this person who is very good, who God created me to be, and that's where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus comes in to bring us the bread and the wine right through his sacrifice for us to reconnect, to be very good, and to really allow our true selves to come out. He bridges what we lost through sin, and Jesus came to reconcile my true self to him. So today with communion, We remember and we honor that God created us as very good and his brokenness on the cross allows us to be that person. And by this sacrifice, he helps us find our true selves and reconcile us to him. So I just offer this to you today to remember that God did create you and who you truly are deep down is very good. And the sin and the brokenness kind of blocks that, right? It kind of thwarts it, as Jamin said, right? The Adam and Eve piece that does kind of twist originally who we were created to be. But as we come closer to Jesus and the Spirit moves through us, that's how we kind of untangle that which is not of our true selves and allows us to grow into into who he created us to be. So God created us as human, and in that, we are very good, and he calls us to deeply be that human and walk into that. So I invite you to the table. Think about that. Allow this to minister to you, to release those parts of you that are not your true self, 
things that may stand in the way of you and connecting deeply with God, connecting with the Spirit, so that you can become more who he created you originally to be.